Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living. Stay tuned at the end of this podcast for exclusive information on workshops and other educational opportunities with me, Oliver Gaucher, and Abundant Edge. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I have a fantastic guest with tons of information to get to, so let's jump right on in. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to one of the foremost authorities on earthen flooring. Her name is Sakita Ray Krimmel. She's the founder of both From These Hands LLC and Claylin LLC, which offers ready-made earthen floor products. Sukita graduated from the University of Oregon with a Bachelor's of Science in Environmental Studies and a minor in Architecture. She later attended natural building workshops in Eugene, Oregon, which got her started in earthen materials. From there, she began working in Portland with schools, children, homeowners, general contractors, and the larger community. Sukita also co-wrote the book Earthen Floors, A Modern Approach to an Ancient Practice, which is a technical guide for creating, installing, and maintaining your own earthen floors. In this interview, we talk about the anatomy of earthen floors, things she's learned over years from installing floors in all kinds of settings, maintenance and care, and much more. So without any more messing around, here's Sukita. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sukita. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You said it's been kind of a rainy season, uh, unusually rainy season in Portland this year. How's that affecting your jobs? Oh, uh, not too much because most of my jobs are indoors. Ah, mostly finished work. Yeah, interior finishes, so it's it's not slowing anything down that way. Oh, that's nice. All right, well, hey, we got a whole bunch of stuff to get into, so how about I just jump right into the first question? Let's go for it. All right, so you're best known for the beautiful and high-quality earthen floors that you install and the products that your company, Claylin, sells for DIY floor makers. How did you first learn how to pour earthen floors, and can you explain the steps and anatomy for us? Well, what I first learned isn't necessarily what I do now, but I first was a part of an earthen floor in Eugene, Oregon, in 1999, I believe, or 2000, somewhere in that time period, I was working for a builder, and he had learned earthen floors to some degree from the spill in Athena Steam, and we did a floor in a structure in Eugene, and it was just a delightful, muddy, wet day in the middle of December. <laughs> uh, but I didn't know anything besides I was just helping out. I continued to just do natural building and brought myself into Portland and wanted to bring natural building into the urban environment. And so floors and plaster were a way to bring those materials, you know, not a whole structure, but some part of natural building into existing or just other types of structures than uh, cob or straw bale structures. And I did a lot of plaster and I also saw that earthen floors weren't being developed in a way that plaster had already been developed in this uh, modern era, per se. And so I just started doing earthen floors more. Um, So that's a little history. You asked for the anatomy of it, um, meaning the structure of, like, what it's made up of. Is that what you mean? Sure, and the different layers. Yeah, so the way I approach earthen, uh, the earthen floors that I create is, it's a finish coat. I do a three-quarter inch finish. And that earthen floor, that three-quarter inch, that could be laid on top of subfloors of various types. So I'll just say briefly that the subfloor can be a concrete slab. It could be a plywood framed structure. It's two by sixes of plywood or something. Or it can be uh, creating your own slab with no concrete, like gravel, uh, insulation, and we could get into the details of that. But the specifics of that three-quarter inch finish, um, that's a mix of a clay body, meaning a soil, a native soil uh, that has a, a decent amount of clay in it, some 40-50% of clay body. It could be a little less, but you, you have to figure out how much clay is in it to determine how much sand you're going to mix in it. Uh, it all shakes down, per se, into the final mix being about 10 to 15% clay, and the rest is sand and silt. It's a very small amount of clay. You do not want very much clay in your floor. 
And then you mix fibers in it. I've done various types of fibers, but the one I do the most is straw, chopped straw, which is a grain byproduct of the grain industry, the waste of cereal grain. So that clay, soil body, and the sand and the straw are mixed wet for the installation. Um, I mix with a mortar mixer. You can mix with your feet or mix it in a wheelbarrow. And it's troweled out with wood floats and steel trowels. Uh, I work to level it the best I can. I use laser levels and various bubble levels. And at that point, it's all trout out smooth, and you leave it for overnight or maybe two nights, depending on how much moisture is in your air, so that it sets up just a little. And then I go back and I recompress the whole floor. So I go back out on the floor with, they're called pans. They're these metal, kind of like snowshoey, slippery, slidey pans that you are able to walk on the floor. I repress the whole floor and then continue to let it dry the fans and dehumidifiers if need be. And after that three-quarters of an inch, you could get that thing to dry in less than a week, five to seven days. And at that point, I saturate the floor with oil. Oil, uh, to seal an earthen floor at this point that I know of, um, hardening oils, drying oils, are used. Linseed oil is the main one that people know. The blend I use is linseed oil, tongue oil, and it has pine, linseed oil and tongue oil are both drying oils. I also have pine rosin and beeswax and some plant solvents to help it saturate into the floor. So that blend gets applied to the, the dry, absorbent earthen floor. And I do four or five coats all in one day. And then I let that Sure, the oils harden over the next week, but fans, very much needing fans when you're curing your oil. And after a week of oil drying, I come back with a large sort of floor sanding machine, and I sand the floor, and that takes any, the rough edges from the oil kind of lifting the grain, per se, of the, of the earth, and it takes that edge off. It's not a necessary step, but it's, it makes it a little smoother to walk on. And at that point, it does scratch the surface, that sanding, and so I just put one more application of oil on it at that point, or you can do a wax coat at that point, or some other finish that I haven't explored all the options, but there's ways of finishing it with maybe polyurethane. I haven't done all those things, but mainly I just do another coat of oil. And then it's ready. That oil needs to dry over the next five days. But yeah, and I know that that sounds like a lot of steps, but a lot of it is done in one or two days and the rest is dry time? Yes, yes. Nice, so, so it's pretty uh, approachable for, for a small crew of people, right? Yeah, yeah, the main Labor Day is the pouring. That day, uh, unless it's a really big floor, that day will do the work of protecting other surfaces around the floor, like the walls or where it meets other floor flooring or to track into the floor. You want to make sure you're not rolling your heavy wheelbarrow over somebody's nice finished tile or whatever. Of but course. All the prep work, <laughs> flooring, that is all a very labor-intensive day. So you have your crew, and I, at this point, you know, size my crew depending on the size of the floor. And... Everybody comes that day, but then the next day, the pressing of the floor, that's one or two people. It's a really big floor. It, it can be days of pressing, or it could be days, a couple people, more than a couple people. Um, but then the oiling, also sim simple to do, one or two people. The sanding, one or two people, and that last cut of oil. So it's like a big push at the beginning, and then approachable for one or two people. Yeah. yeah, that's been my so experience said, as well. In that it's not that many days, yeah, not that many days of labor, just days of curing the, the mud and the oil. For sure. Now, you've been doing this for quite a number of years. How have you sort of tweaked and improved the process over that time to get the best results? Yeah. The, the first floor that I mentioned that I poured was very different than what I do now. The places that I can highlight are uh, the use of tools in the beginning. I, I didn't use to use a wood float or a stiff steel trowel.
trowel. I used a, a swimming pool trowel, a steel swimming pool trowel for the application as well as the burnishing, and it made very bumpy, rolly kind of floor. And so a wood float has no mercy. It levels things. And then the hard steel trowel that's, that's very rigid and square, you could also see where you have highs and lows because the points of the corners of the trowel really show your highs and lows. So those two trials really help get my floors flatter. I'm not needing it to be so dead flat that you don't notice any sort of natural feel of the hand, but you want to not have to wedge every piece of furniture in your house. <laughs> so those steps were really vital. Um, the mix itself, I, um, I experimented with less and less clay over time. You get to a place that it has very little clay, and floors before me and in my early days had more clay, and they had more tendency to crack. Uh, they also had a little bit more shine to them because the more clay in the mix, uh, the more flat platelets of clay kind of sit on the surface. But I was more interested in uh, getting to a point that I didn't have to deal with cracks, or at least reducing the potential for cracks. And so, like I said, my mix shakes down to about 10% clay body, with the rest being sands and silts. Um, the next sort of step of my process was that step I mentioned that's optional of sanding the floor after the oil's been cured a week. And not a necessary step, like I had mentioned. You know, we walk on the floors after they're oiled, and our natural traffic of people walking and living on floors will, will soften whatever edges are still there, but sanding it just does that all uniformly for you and you don't have as much grit. I think that the combination of me bringing my clay body down so far also added a little grit. So the sanding is just helping soften that. Sure, that makes um, sense. Yeah. And then bringing it into a product is a development that uh, hadn't happened anywhere else yet and that's been an interesting journey of its own, but... <laughs> Just offering something that someone can rely on and and not have to do a bunch of recipe testing uh, helps helps some people in the world. Lots of people still like to make their own. Sure, but it takes a lot of the guesswork out for people who are just getting started. Yeah. Nice. Now, what are some of the common misconceptions that people have about earthen floors? Hmm. Well, I've stood at home shows off and on through the years, and even with my samples right there in front of them, people can touch them, and they don't dust, but people will have this, are you, are you going to have a dusty floor? They think dirt floor, they think just compacted dirt, they don't think that it's actually sealed, and it's not really a dirt floor, it's makeup does have dirt, but it's, my name, the name of the product I created, Clay Lynn. The clay is the magic that holds it together, and the lin, linseed oil, is only one of the oils, but it's like, it's vital. You will have a dusty floor if you don't put oil on your floor. So, dusty, this might not be the same answer you're going for, but people usually, in the general public, when I'm exposing these floors, people who have never heard of natural building, people are surprised by how long it takes. And I've gotten this install down to two and a half weeks, which is, in my mind, quite short. Yeah, I agree. And this blows people away. It's quite short, you know, when we've, if you've come from natural building, that feels um, like we've shortened things. Sure. But the general public, you could get a floor installed over a weekend. So two weeks kind of blows people out, <laughs> surprises people. So they're not, that's, that's a shock to them. And then, again, it's the same, it's more of a surprise reaction. The, the install includes those layers of oil and the smell and experience of the oil in, in a home or in a construction site um, is strong and you can't live with that for the first couple days at the very least and it can still linger to be kind of eh, even a nuisance for a few weeks and so that's something that is definitely part of the conversation to have with people when they're first interacting with earthen floors and potentially choosing to have an earthen floor. Yeah, for sure. It is a little bit of a process until it fully gets settled in and, and uh, loses some of the, the smell. And, and 
I don't know. Sometimes I've, uh, when I've installed floors, there's remained a little bit of a tackiness for a couple of weeks as well, um, while the oils take their oh. time to dry. Mm. Do you have wax in your, in your blend? Yes, that's putting uh, beeswax in it as well. You might have a little too much beeswax. Okay. But what, what ratio do you recommend? Very little. <laughs> I don't know the exact ratio. Um, I, at this point, because I have my oils blended, for me at this point, it's pretty low. Um, and I only really have it in the oil. I don't do a beeswax application at the end. Because what you're experiencing, even if you bring it low, wax takes a lot longer to cure than the oil. Right. And so I, Again, back to the wanting to keep it to the shortest amount of time. After you sand it and put another coat of oil on, that oil will cure, even with a little wax in it, will cure in five days, seven days at the most. Wax could take two more weeks for that wax to dry out. Ah, there we go. That's definitely where that comes from then. Yeah, that adds some time. So now... And airflow. Heat and airflow help cure it. But, uh... Too much wax, like it just needs to be a really thin layer. So if you're having any kind of sensation of like, a le- like if it, you can see the wax on the surface, there's too much. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. want it to be getting in there. So. Now, what are some of the main factors to consider when trying to install an earthen floor in a conventional home or even on possibly a second story floor? Uh, well, any situation that you're going to be putting an earthen floor, there's going to be a subfloor. So that the, there's three different types of subfloors, like I said, and you asked about second floors. And many conventional homes, the first floor is this way too. So I'll address the framing structure question that you're alluding to. The stick frame joists with some sort of membrane, being plywood, or... There's other forms of membranes, but typically plywood. You want that structure to be able to hold the weight. So there's basic engineering um, that I typically hand off to an engineer, uh, but most structures, if they're built to code, they're able to hold the weight of a three-inch concrete floor. So having a three-quarter inch or even an inch and a half earthen floor, the weight is going to be fine. That's just dead weight. Then there's live load, so there's any sort of flexibility in the framing. Again, engineering, typical construction is it's going to be engineered so that there's very little flex. But when I'm consulting with a, a homeowner, do it yourself, or an old house that you're coming into, you just want to have it stiff like you would be preparing for tile. There's a calculation about that that I can't get into that, that well uh, in this moment. But nonetheless, a, an easy way to go in and check this is having two people, or maybe more than two people, one person laying on the ground and, like, watching the subfloor, and one or three people in the middle of the floor kind of bouncing on it. And if there's any movement more than a quarter inch or so, you won't be able to measure it, but if there's really movement in the floor, that's too much movement for an earthen floor. So those are some quick ways of checking your flex. It's called deflection. You don't want your floor to, the subfloor to deflect. So that said, the structure needs to hold the weight and not deflect. When you're coming into a space like that, also, you have that wood, um, plywood. Um, underneath, and you don't want that plywood to get wet. It won't be wet for very long. It's going to be wet for just a period of time that you're pouring the floor, then it drying out, but the edges of plywood, when they get wet, they can crinkle, if you've seen that happen. And so what I put down before I put the earth on top of plywood, I put a tar paper material. There's this very thin, flat lane tar paper material called Aqua Bar B. It's just something I've found the underlayment for, like, quick-together flooring. But it could be any sort of heavy construction, waxy paper, just something that's going to basically stop the moisture in your mud from um, getting your plywood wet. So that's something to consider. And then wherever your floor is meeting other floor, 
you need to consider what that's going to look like. Is it going to be a butt joint that you're going to have to make sure you continue maintaining as you trowel and you burnish and you oil, making sure that those two floors meet and they still look good together. And that's the maintenance of just troweling it well. And you want to tape off so you're not getting your mud and your oil on the other floor. And you want to consider that sometimes you don't want tape to be there for days and days. You might have to tape it, do your oiling, take it off, tape it, do your sanding. You know, take the tape off in every step. Or you could have um, various types of thresholds can help meet those two materials, like a T joint so that you don't actually see the joint between the two floor materials. That's a way to hide it. You know, there's a lot of answers, but you just need to consider where it's meeting. You also need to consider where it's meeting walls. If, you know, conventional houses are usually square, and so they're often going to have trim base board up against all the walls. And I suggest and I um, strongly request that we install earthen floors before they put base board in. And I work to level that nice and tight for the carpenters so that they don't have to scribe their baseboard. But the baseboard, what it does is it covers any sort of shrinkage of the earthen floor away from the wall. And that doesn't have to be that way. Some people don't want trim, and so you have to really do a lot to care for making to push back the earth at that corner if there's any pullback. And again, like I was mentioning with the connection to another floor, you want to tape off that wall, and you're going to want to take that tape off in each step. If you tape, when it gets wet, it'll start sticking to the surface underneath, so you want to take it off. If you get oil on it, it'll stick even more to the surface. You have to manage that edge a lot. Sure. Having a baseboard really helps uh, reduce the amount of labor on managing the edges. <laughs> um, and then conventionally, if you're doing existing structures and people want to be living in them soon after or even during, you want to make sure that they will not be living in there those couple days at the very least after you put the oil on. That's it's too many vapors for people to be living in. It sure. It does need to also be considered that it is going to smell for a while after that, but those first couple days are when the actual VOCs, the natural VOCs of the solvents, the citrus and the pine solvents, are off-gassing. The rest of it's just the curing of oil, which isn't a VOC issue, but it is still strong in smell. Sure, and now... That's all the things I can think of for... Yeah, yeah, and, you know, there's always variables with each different project, too. I'm sure you know about that. Mm-hmm. Each Each one is a little bit different, so, yeah, so, I mean, everybody yeah. who's trying this out either at their own home or on another job is going to find a couple of variants that, you know, it's just, it's worth uh, figuring into any job. Now, what are yeah. the most important ways to maintain an earthen floor, especially to prevent cracking and stains? Um, well, cracking... For the most part, it has to do with the mix being too high of a clay content or the install being too variable between batches, like very wet, wet batch next to a very dry, dry batch, or your screen board being, it, like, install factors have a big effect on cracking, so having the install done well. And... The suddenly or the movement of a structure, the building itself, can crack a floor. As well as points, whether the building moves or not, it, it subtly moves, even if it doesn't do a big movement. All points in the field, so say you have a, a living room and you're also going down a hallway outside of the living room, you're, you're funneling, the floor is going from a large space down to a narrow space. And the point of the corners of the hallway, that's kind of a little knife that could crack. You've seen it probably off of many concrete floors. The corners where cracks can happen. Sure, also in earthen plasters, too. that corner. Yeah, so you, you could lay underneath the floor, between the floor and the corner. You could, you could put a little bumper, like a rubber tape bumper that you're covering with earth, but that gives a little bit of 
protection from the movement of the um, Adobe next to the movement of the of the frame structure. You could sure. also put control joints in uh, thresholds like that, so you could give the space for the tension to go through the control joint instead of cracking the the mass of the floor. Um, so that's all install and structure. As for the maintenance is what you're asking. So of course, you know, any floor, maybe besides concrete, but still concrete can be scratched. It, it serves us all, I believe, both structurally and energetically to take our shoes off and not bring all of the crumbs and bits that we collect on our shoes onto the floor. That is abrasion that can scratch and give damage to your floor. So shoes off is a good policy. It's not required. These floors can't handle that. Um, but sweeping and vacuuming, and then when you use any sort of soap, you're going to use an oil-based soap, um, the most common, you know, product that people can think of when they know that is Murphy's oil soap. But there's other ones that are more ecological, or at least their mission is that way, eco-ever and I believe you could create your own oil-based soap. And why you need oil-based soap is that you want to be adding oil to the, the chains, the oil that, the reason that oil dries and hardens and makes the floor the way it is, is it's creating polymer chains, basically plastic. And I use oils that are plant-based, so it's all plant-based plastic network inside the floor. And those chains are strong, but they won't last forever. They can weaken over time. And when you're adding oil, using oil soap, you're kind of adding oil to help reconnect chains and keep them strong. You don't want to use a soap that's a solvent that will slowly degrade the chain connection. So it's a chemical thing in that you want oil-based soaps. Well, that's and really cool. I didn't know about that before. Yeah, long-term maintenance, you want to oil your floor again. If it starts to become tacky, like you've never had a tacky floor and then it starts to become tacky at some point, my understanding, back to chemistry, and this is me consulting with a chemist about it, but nonetheless, the tackiness is potentially the result of the chains breaking and they're kind of, the ends of their chains are kind of up and they're waiting to be connected. They're like, ah, I need to be connected. <laughs> Cartoon vision there, but nonetheless... <laughs> Helps to it visualize. Is that the oil chains are breaking, and so you want to put more oil on. Um, if you did go years and years and years without oil soap and no oil, you could get tacky floors. My my guidance would be to thickly sand the floor just to get grum off, and then put new oil on. If you maintain it more regularly, you can just put more oil on every three years, five years, ten years. If it goes beyond 10, you might need to do more maintenance depending on the access, um, the, the exposure. Of course, oil chains, they break down from heat. So rooms that are in the sun, or if you have heat in your floors, those chains will break a little sooner maybe than a floor that doesn't have that. That being said, those are wonderful ways of having your floor in the sun and having heat. So using oil-based soap really helps condition your floor and the oil particularly. Ah, nice. That's really cool about the soaps. I didn't know that from before. Now, changing <laughs> topics just a little bit here, uh, how did you decide to offer products and ready-made mixes of earthen floor for people who install it for themselves? Um, uh, be willing to be risky, I guess. <laughs> I, I'm a contractor, uh, but I've been installing floors for some time before I created this product, and I didn't necessarily actually think of do-it-yourselfers as much as I thought of other contractors, but either one, I think do-it-yourselfers are actually more willing to have a pile of sand and a pile of clay and a pile of straw and process all the material. But as a contractor, and you're showing up in a commercial, even residential, but commercial kind of situation, you've got other contractors, um, you've got the building inspectors, you got everything. Little pads of sand, clay, and straw, 
and all the work to be involved in processing your clay right there on site because you don't want to process it somewhere else and bring it. Like, that's a lot to ask a contractor to think they're going to take on earth and floors and do that. And I was getting tired as a contractor doing that. So providing something that all that kind of behind-the-scenes processing is complete and you get a pallet with a stack of 50-pound bags of ready mix and all it is is that the sand and the clay is the bag together for you. And there's a different bag for straw. And it's ratioed out so you don't have to do any counting. So it's easy to go. So it was mainly thinking to bring something I love into an industry that doesn't have it. It wasn't necessarily thinking so much for the do-it-yourselfers. Though, I told to do-it-yourselfers. But I've also consulted do-it-yourselfers on how to mix it with their own local resource because they're actually more typically open to that. But when someone's never heard of earthen floors and they're a concrete contractor in Nevada, they're like, yeah, give me the product. <laughs> sure. So it's more for bringing it to a wider audience. Yeah, and it helps to take the guesswork and some of the experimentation out for people who just want to get a, a consistent result. I see what you're saying. Yeah. For sure. And I wanted that too. I had been working with different clay bodies. I, I tried to actually focus in on like two different clay bodies that I worked with in Portland and that helped my floors improve in the years prior to that product. But I still was having piles delivered and you could only get a yard or maybe a half a yard increment. And so often I had extra sand piles and extra clay piles and that's a lot of work to remove those <laughs> from the job site. Yeah, of course. Now, despite having a stronger background in natural building practices rather than industrial ones, I know you're trying to work with the construction industry to help to diversify what they offer and the materials that they work with. What materials and techniques do you think will be easiest for them to adopt? Um, good question. I, I think my passion sometimes gets in the way of like what's the reality, but, um, I think products that can fit into the existing systems are much more accessible to uh, the current industry or the, the mindset that's never had natural building products. Meaning, you know, the product of Boylan or the product of even American clay, you know, those, you don't have to, as a contractor, figure out the key. And the how-to is kind of similar to the how-to of something else, like applying uh, that product of, clay plaster is similar to applying gypsum plaster. So a plaster from the union, oh, I just need to know that I can't do the second coat till tomorrow. That's not much different than gypsum. It's just there's a day wait. Similar to the earthen floor, I've worked with many concrete installers, and they're so quickly able to adapt. They know how to trial. Oh, it's just that things are just taking longer between steps. So, having things already systematized is, is seemingly very helpful for uh, the conventional building market, and I think it's very different than what, when I come out of natural, you know, the natural building minds, like, we work with what we have, and we find ways to create, I need a wall system, what do I have in my region? I love that aspect of what natural building is, and it's, it comes back to resourcefulness and integrity and self-responsibility and those things. I want that to be where the world's going, and I often, why I brought these materials into, you know, floors and plasters, they could, they're kind of like a gateway between those mindsets and the conventional systematic structures of the, you know, current building system. And so, those, those systems are closer to meeting each other. Like, it's just a replacement of your concrete. Look, it's the same kind of steps, but here you go. That's a lot easier for someone who's in the regular system of the world not having to, like, reinvent the wheel, you know. They don't want sure. to reinvent the wheel. They it sounds like you're getting into thing. transferable skills that they can you know, take from one job and apply it to a new material. Yeah, the main thing that's really different for them is that it all takes a lot longer. So, 
schedule's the biggest thing that they're like, whoa, two weeks? I'm like, yep, two weeks, three, three weeks, two and a half weeks. Okay. <laughs> now, you've also mentioned to me before that you would like to see natural building be adopted by labor unions. What impacts do you think this would have on the natural on natural building as an industry, or do you see it as being an aspect of the construction unions that already exist? Oh, I would say I see it as being a part of the construction unions that already exist. I I think that there's more people in the world of construction and in unions than there are natural builders, and I think it's a good system. Unions are about um, good paying jobs, health care, supporting your family, like there's a lot of quality, we don't need to reinvent that, and unions have systems in place of like, okay, you come in and you, you learn these systems, and you, you're an apprentice, and then you become um, a plaster, and then you're a master plaster, and and you can take that tool, and you can work, the union is like funnel system to the job, and if they just had other things that they started training people on, you know, then they would know how to do earthen floors, or they would know how to do earthen plasters. Um, and that's already happening in some clusters around here. Um, but I mentioned that because I'm currently witnessing, or maybe coming to understanding, that specifically the plaster union in the Portland metro region, and likely other places, it's a dying art. There is not much plaster left. I mean, it's still happening. Plaster's product are moving more and more towards synthetics. There's that. But many of the plasters, at least what I've been exposed to recently, is that they're going in and they're not even using hawks and trials anymore. Their job is to spray on some plaster type of material, some gypsum in a liquid form, onto steel I-beams or other wood frame structures to encase those structures of large, of large buildings in a non-flammable material so that, you know, their fire ratings are safer. And so it's that they're working with wet chips of material, so it is plaster, but the plasters aren't even plastering. And um, I just, I found that to be sad. <laughs> I'm like, if there was, if there was both more call for plaster, so it's it, supply and demand, right? There needs to be people that are wanting and calling out for plaster. Specs for big buildings, okay, we want plaster everywhere. So then there's actually a job for plaster. Yeah, so you so, think that maybe earthen plaster could be a way of <laughs> could be a way of reviving this trade? Ooh, I don't know about... I think it could help. I don't know if there's an, at this point enough call for like earthen plasters to actually revive it, but if another layer of material and interest, like if more people found themselves exposed to earthen plasters and like, yeah, I want that, oh, I want that in these school settings or uh, institutional settings, bigger structures, uh, then more jobs would happen for plasters. Um, lime plaster is also a little bit more uh, stable, more able to be beat up without as much damage to the surface. Clay plasters are softer, lime are a little harder. Uh, and that's what we specialize in. We do clays and lime. So both of those, if they got called out more and people wanted more of those surfaces, then we'd be able to call in more plasters. Now this might so, tie into the next thing that I was... <laughs> yeah. Now, this, I think this ties in a little bit to the next thing I was going to ask you about, and you've spoken in the past about the rituals around making form out of the materials around us and the relationships that are formed in this process. Could you give me a couple of examples uh, of this? Yeah, this is interesting that that connected you to that question. Um, it is definitely, there's form of relationship in any connection of working together, so... There's all those connections within conventional construction industry. Uh, but what you're bringing up is the part of the stories that I have to share are, are coming from a different space. 
Okay, no, go ahead. It just made me think about this because you were talking about, um, you know, reviving different arts and practices. Yeah. um, Well, it it is very connected. Whenever you work with people, especially in their homes, it gets very personal and a lot of different emotions and, and, and subconscious behaviors just are there, whether they're talked about or not. And so I was just meeting with a client this morning and, you know, the beginning of that relationship is a ritual of itself. You know, you're just, I'm there listening and the clients, they're just speaking all of their dreams and the wishes and their hopes. Um, And then it moves into design so that things get a little bit more solid and then design's going to budget and things get even more solid and you have to make choices of, what to keep and what not to keep and then you get into construction and and there's expectations and and how fast things are going to take and usually most people that are having contractors built for them have never been through a process so they could be surprised at different parts so there's this, this journey that you go through with someone it's just such a high low high low uh expectations and disappointments and excitement and and then eventually there's a completion of a space and then you get to live with that space and then there's all of the years of maintenance and questions of all of that so that's just highlighting the whole like arc of what it is to be a contractor creating space for someone and that's true whatever materials you're creating with um what i wanted to speak about was the potential for these natural building materials to connect people to it, I believe something that's inherent for all humans is our interest and enjoyment of creating space. At this point in our humanity, we're all separated out and specialized. So you hire someone to build them. I know that that was probably still somewhat true. There was specialization when we lived more in village life. But we were much more connected to it, I believe. And I, I think even small projects can help bring people back to that cathartic experience of like having a vision in their mind, physically working with it, and then ultimately having a form in front of them. And so that could be small-scale situations. I've done practices with youth. I helped these little kids go through a process of designing and then creating little models. So the scale of the little cob structures that they created were, you know, eight inches tall and took up one by two foot piece of plywood. So, you know, they got to go through the experience of thinking of ideas, designing them, and then mixing the materials and then actually physically creating them. And that's one small way to work with anybody, whether it's, um, someone who's really going to build or just that experience for you to recognize that they can create something. But on an even deeper level, um, or just maybe a different part of our psyche, I one time had an experience that I gathered with four or five other people who we all had recently experienced um, a death in our lives, someone close, and it was a journey that we all came together and did some shamanic kind of dreaming together. And the intention and the creation of that day was that we did that work quietly inside and then we all came out to this cob wall that was there and we replastered, we just put a new coat of plaster on this wall. And there was no vocal experience of the actual plastering. We went from that dream state into putting plaster on the wall. There was no training on my part. Everybody just took the mud and smeared it on and used their own intuition. And it was very rich for everybody to, like, have that experience of just feeling their own intuition of how to put something as simple as an earthen plaster on a cob wall. So that was one of the rituals that I was thinking of when I shared that with you. And the other... A little less, uh, well, a little bit more temporary. I experienced um, a ritual of every uh, four of us took the elements of the earth, 
air, water, and fire, and we all created experiences for people to um, engage in those elements, and I got to hold a space for Earth, and I had a very white sheetrock wall room, and I just had a bucket of wet clay soil, basically slip, um, kind of as slippery as a thick milkshake, and people got to just express themselves with their hands on these white walls with that mud material. And again, that was less of a um, construction result, but it was in a space, and people got to create that space with their own hands with mud. And why earthen materials really, I think, can leave these experiences easily into people's lives is that they're non-toxic. They're available. They're you could clean them off the walls, or you could redo it. It's nothing that's going to be um, damaging to your skin or to the environment around it. It's, it's a simple material that's accessible, and it just has a lot of there's a lot of play involved. People feel really excited to play in the mud. <laughs> Everybody I've ever been around that played in the mud with me is usually surprised. They're already knew they liked it, or they didn't think they would, and then they're like, oh my god, this is so fun. I think you make some really great points there about the connectivity <laughs> and the accessibility, not just of the uh, the materials, but like you're talking about, these rituals and these processes that come out when people interact with the earth or, you know, with other natural materials. It goes along really well with something that, uh, do you yeah. know Kirk Mobert? I just interviewed him recently, and he talks a lot about the re-indigenization of building practices. And it's just like you were talking yeah. about, these things don't have, yeah. you know, engineering specs or really rigid guidelines for how to interact with them. And it opens up a lot of possibilities for people to not only be creative with, you know, the outcome and the result of what the thing looks like, but with the process and with the experience of working with the materials as well. And I, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Mm, yeah. There's also the... The labor-intensive part, when if you really are going to build a cob structure or a strap, there's a lot of labor involved when it comes back to natural building materials. It's, it's more laborious than it is uh, manufactured elsewhere, right? Certainly. And so even if it's a construction site, well, like I have a crew of people, and we're there, and we're there to get the job done, and it is, you know, I'm, people are getting paid, but there's, an easy, there's not as many power tools involved. There's like room for conversation and connection just because the materials don't require so many isolating um, safety mechanisms, ear and eye and, um, you know, respirators. You know, there Certainly. are steps in an urban floor or in any of these that you do need to have things that stop you from being able to hear each other. But when you're plastering a wall together, for the most part, everybody can hear each other and great conversations come out of it and so there's a connection yeah that's another great point it does sort of facilitate a more social environment on the work site i agree yeah yeah it does make for a more enjoyable experience i i spent probably about six years in the industrial construction and engineering trades and <laughs> when i switched over to natural yeah. building that was definitely one of the first things that i noticed was just how much more sociable yeah. and uh accessible uh, thing, you know, the interactions between people and between the environment you're working with were without those added barriers that are constantly needed either, you know, for noise protection or respiratory protection, yeah. all those other things that, yeah. that kind of remove you from the experience. Well, great. So yeah. before yeah. I have to wrap up now, um, how can people learn more about your work, your product line, and any courses or workshops that you might have coming up? Good question. My website Claylin.com, that's Claylin, C-L-A-Y-L-I-N.com, has a workshop page on it, so that's definitely where you'd find out about any trainings I have. And I'm in, I also have a website, Sukita.com, S-U-K-I-T-A.com, and it's in the works to sort of bring out other aspects of my um, offerings, my design and consulting kind of aspects. There's a, a link on that page that also has events. So both of those pages, whenever I do have something new, I update both of those at the same time. 
That being said, they both have some need of upgrade, but that's the best way to see what is next in my world. I do have a newsletter link, and there's some revamping of the newsletter, so that will be coming <laughs> with some new features soon. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the workshop you know, events page is the best place to know what's happening. Wonderful, and I'll make sure to put links to all of those things on the show notes for this episode as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Sakita. It was a real pleasure talking to you. We learned a whole lot today. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate what you're doing in the world, and I, I checked out some of the interviews you've had, and you've definitely talked to a lot of the, a lot of the people I know in this world, and it's good that you're building up that resource um, in this podcast. Yeah, well, it's such a great and supportive community that I've found between natural building permaculture and the rest of the, you know, regenerative living trades and, and skill sets. Everyone seems to be so generous with their information, um, and it's, it's been very encouraging. Yeah. But, yeah, maybe yeah. next time we'll have to do an interview about some of uh, those other skills that you were talking about. I'd love to learn more about that in the future. Well, I really love what you're coming at around the regenerative. You, I heard you say that word just now, and I did look at your website, and I think that really speaks to where we do need to be, and I think the permaculture and natural building um, are such a rich bed for that aspect, and part of regenerative is that that open share, the open source sort of of what natural building has in its sort of makeup, both permaculture and natural building, and there's ways that you, you pay for workshops, or you buy books, but there's like this rich, like, go out and do this, please, go make a floor, I'll help you. Um, so these are what I know so I, I'm glad you're finding that in this network of people so well thank you Good so job. much that means a lot well I hope we can connect again soon <laughs> um, and take care okay. have a good day yeah you too have a great bye. day bye thank you so much for tuning into this episode I hope you enjoyed it as always you can go to the website at AbundantEdge.com and click under the tab podcast in the navigation bar to find all of the show notes from this and all of our previous episodes as well. And if you're someone who is interested in starting a regenerative living project with building or landscape design, we also offer a full range of services from consulting, construction, and design. Coming up soon we also have a workshop opportunity that's likely to start in the first or second week of April. If anybody is looking to get started building with cob or other natural materials, then this will be the perfect project for you to start your learning. We'll be building a natural sauna on a beautiful location here in San Marcos La Laguna on Lake Atitlan, Guatemala. For all the most recent updates on the details and start times of this workshop, you can subscribe to our bi-monthly newsletter at AbundantEdge.com. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I look forward to seeing you on the next one.